Welcome to the Friday Night Clive podcast with me, Clive Payne. In this podcast, we look back at the amazing charities, organisations and people we have chatted to over the past few months, all of whom have interesting and important stories to tell. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Does that sound familiar? Those are the first few lines of the rhyme that I think we were all taught in school when learning about the gunpowder plot, which is associated with Bonfire Night. But what do we actually know about the history of the gunpowder plot and Bonfire Night? Also, the religious and political connotations that it had. Well, with me in the studio is Dr. David Cox, who's a lecturer from the University of Wolverhampton, to tell me more. Dave, good evening. Good evening. Thank you very much for uh, joining me this evening. Um, Paint me a picture of what the country was like for people during the time of the gunpowder plot then. Okay, so... Come a bit closer to your microphone, if you will, that's it. Lovely. I think we need to go back, really, to uh, the reign of Henry VIII uh, with the reformation of the English Church, um, whereby uh, the Protestant religion was... um, given as the main religion Mm. for England. Um, It changed a little bit uh, with um, Mary Tudor, um, his eldest daughter, but when Elizabeth came on the throne and stayed on the throne for almost 50 years, uh, it was a staunchly Protestant country. It was also uh, not a good place to be if you were a Catholic. There were a lot of laws. Uh, Catholics couldn't own... um, uh, couldn't um, hold high office... Uh, oh, really? No, no, they couldn't ha- hold high political office. Uh, priests were banned, uh, and later, in, towards the end of her reign, uh, if, you were f- if a priest was found, they would be immediately executed, the Catholic priest. When she died, um, James I of England, James VI of Scotland, came to power, and a lot of Catholics had high hopes uh, in the fact that he had intimated that he would be a little bit more lenient towards Catholics, but unfortunately this did not occur. Uh, consequently, there was still a large religious divide, and a lot of people were very unhappy, and this is what led ultimately to the gunpowder plot. So, you know, it was quite volatile then, really, uh, ex- you know, uh, uh, at that time. Ex- extremely volatile. There had been numerous plots, either real or imagined, such as the 1586 Babington plot, where Mary, um, Queen of Scots, uh, was accused uh, and, in fact, found guilty of trying to uh, overthrow Queen Elizabeth because she was obviously a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, there were various other plots as well. Uh, Elizabeth had a very extensive spy network run by Sir Francis Walsing- Walsingham, uh, and this was taken over in James's reign by Robert Cecil, who was uh, the Secretary of State, so the equivalent of the Home Secretary, who also had a very effective spy work, uh, as we'll see a little so bit later. what year are we talking about now, just to get some context? We're, well, we're us. talking about the plot was actually for, formulated in 1604, but obviously the gunpowder plot took place on the 5th of November, 1605. Okay. So who were the plot conspirators, and how were they connected, and how come they got conscript, conscripted, if you like, to doing this? Okay. So uh, everybody knows Guy Fawkes. Mm. But Guy Fawkes was not the leader of the plot. The leader of the plot was a guy called Robert Catesby. He came from a wealthy family. 
um, but he was uh, staunchly Catholic. Uh, he, both he and his relatives, there were various relatives. There was John and um, Thomas Winter or Winter. There was also John and Christopher Wright. There was also Francis Tresham was a later one, uh, later conspirator. So the, the, it's generally thought that there were about uh, just over a dozen, thirteen main plotters. Really? Yes. Yeah, so it was it was a small cabal, uh, and people get the wrong idea because although they were Catholics and they'd been um, th- they were um, persecuted, they all came from quite wealthy families. Uh, they all all, all owned uh, considerable property in the Midlands. For example, uh, Catesby was born in Warwickshire. Uh, you had Stephen Littleton who owned uh, Hall Beach House. You had his uh, cousin um, H- uh, Humphrey Littleton who owned what is now Hagley Hall but was then Hagley House. Um, so that they were wealthy individuals but they were very hard done to because of their religion. And I guess then that they, they were really sort of advocating for, you know, Catholicism and, and you know, the, 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 the um, sort of Protestant part at that time in, in, the, con- in the country. In, in indeed, England, yes. I guess. W- what they wanted was to uh, put, uh, th- as I say, they had high hopes originally of James I, but he proved just as difficult uh, with regards to well, the Well, he Catholic was a bit religion. wet, wasn't uh, he? He was, a bit, he, he was a bit wet in many many respects, yes. Not one of our greatest monarchs. But the does... Uh, the, uh, and, sorry. Sorry, and believed in the absolute power of monarchy. Um, but there is, as you say, quite a Midlands connection because where I live, I'm not far from um, one of the many National Trust properties around which is Coat and Court. Indeed, yes. And I think some of the conspirators uh, spent time there. Uh, it was the conspirators' wives. The wives, spent sorry. Time, yeah. Spent time at Coat and Court, yes. But when the uh, plot, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but when the plot failed, uh, many of the conspirators came back to the Midlands, mm-hmm. to their, their Midlands headquarters, because the Midlands was a hotbed of Catholic intrigue. And of course, they've got priest holes there. And as you said, because priests Indeed. were persecuted, that's where they hid them. So let's go back a little bit now. So what events led up to the gunpowder plot? And what were they hoping to achieve by blowing up Parliament? Of course, it isn't the Parliament that we know today. That, no. was, that was a later edition. Indeed, a later, later yes, building. much later building. Um, so, you know, what was actually going on? So what they wanted to do, they wanted, they decided, the conspirators got together and they decided that at the state opening of Parliament on the 5th of November... 1605, they wanted to blow up both the king uh, and all of his privy councillors, the House of Lords, uh, and what they wanted to install, what they wanted to do was put his uh, young daughter, Elizabeth, who eventually became Queen of Bohemia, they wanted to put her on as a, on the throne as a puppet monarch, but ruled and advised, in inverted commas, by Catholic sympathisers. So what, were the, what was the king about to do? Then that, that cheesed them off sufficiently that uh, they wanted them to do that they wanted to do this. It, it was basically because he had gone back on his word to be more lenient to Catholics, uh, right. and it was still very difficult for being a Catholic. And of course, this was the Britain. state opening of Parliament. Indeed, grand ceremony, very similar to uh, on a similar scale to the, the current day uh, mm. state opening of Parliament. Now, I mentioned earlier on um, before you arrived that I saw this program on Channel Five, which I know I've been harping on about all, all, all during the program. But it was a really good dramatization and documentary about the gunpowder plot. It was presented by uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Zan van Tullikan. Mm. Oh, yes. yes. And they, apart from the dramatisation, they actually showed you how volatile gunpowder is. And with a few grams 
and they ignited some. And, you know, you gods, you, you knew about yes. it kind of thing. So in the dramatization, they 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 got 30 or some odd barrels. Thir 36, 36. 36 barrels of gun... And we're talking large barrels of gunpowder, so the equivalent to a, a modern-day beer keg or even larger. Mm. Uh, and had it been successful, it would have... Uh, there was actually a very good program a few years ago. Uh, Richard Hammond uh, did it, where they recreated it. They recreated the Undercroft and the House of Lords, and they packed it with gunpowder. And it blew... Uh, it, it devastated the area for a, a couple of square miles. Extraordinary. Yes. So hugely powerful. What would what if it had worked then? How would things have been different now right, for well, us? It's it's a really interesting question. I I thought about this quite a lot because obviously Elizabeth would have been possibly put on the throne, but she did have an older brother. Uh, everybody thinks of Charles the uh, first, but Charles was uh, younger. He, she had an older brother who was eleven at the time of the Gunpowder Plot. Henry unfortunately died at the age of eighteen. And I think there would have been an immediate backlash, a Protestant backlash, and they would have tried, obviously because James would have been killed, um, I think they would have tried to put, the Protestants would have, tr uh, there would have been a counter um, plot to put Henry back on the throne as a Protestant king. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, that didn't happen, but had it happened, who knows how it would have changed. You know, um, Catholics would have obviously been less persecuted had Elizabeth mm -hmm. uh, been on the throne and uh, advised by Catholic sympathisers. I mean, we're essentially a Christian country. What, whilst I appreciate we accept other faiths and religions, um, we, you know, we're pr predominantly a Christian country. So I wonder if, you know, um, Catholicism would be our primary faith. I I'm sure it would be had it, uh, had it uh, completely succeeded, but I have my doubts as to whether it would in the mm. immediate aftermath, because I think there would have been such a backlash to what was essentially, they wouldn't have used the word, but essentially what was a, a, an act of terror. Yeah. Now, the gunpowder plot failed, as we know. What caused it to fail? What went wrong? Right. So there, there were many things. Mainly, the, there were too many cooks. There were too many people involved. Uh, they ran out of money. Gunpowder was very difficult to get hold of, good quality gunpowder, so they had to pay uh, for supplies of gunpowder. And whilst Guy Fawkes was a, a, um, an expert uh, with munitions, uh, from their point of view, unfortunately, they weren't too subtle. Um, and uh, there was a, a letter called the Monteagle Letter, which was sent to the brother-in-law of one of the plotters, uh, Lord Monteagle um, saying basically it was a very coded letter saying basically don't turn up if you value your life do not turn up to the state open opening of parliament mm. so he being a staunch Protestant took it straight to the uh, Secretary of State Robert Cecil there is some debate there's a lot of debate there's an awful lot of books being written about this as to whether Cecil knew about the plot because he had a very efficient spy work, spy network, whether or, knew he, or not he knew about the plot beforehand, and he just wanted to catch them literally red-handed, which they did. Mm -hmm. They caught Guy Fawkes red-handed. But they took some tremendous risks oh, as well, while they were actually, you know, barrelling all the, this gunpowder up and moving it, because, you know, that was a military precision. Of course, no electricity, so they're relying by uh, a bit of naked flames. That's right. And they yes. took a tremendous risk, and as I've already said, we know how volatile gunpowder is. Uh, yes, that, that they did indeed, so. As I say, it was it was poorly worked out, and it was even more poorly executed. Why do you think that we remember Guy Fawkes more than Robert Catesby and the others? Because Robert Catesby always springs to my mind, right? Um, but you know, I, we, we do associate Guy Fawkes. So what 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 appeal had he got over the others? I think the appeal was that he was the one who was actually caught literally red-handed mm. with a, with a, a lantern and a burning. They say a match, but it wasn't a safety match. It would have been just a spill of a spill. 
uh, a light spill, lighted mm-hmm. spill, and he was the one who was caught. He was the one who was immediately taken to the Tower of London, and James I actually uh, stated that he should be tortured until he revealed the uh, secrets of the, the plot. Torture was actually illegal um, in, that, in the country then, but uh, that didn't seem to bother James I or, or Guy Fawkes' torturers, and he was on the rack for three days uh, before... No matter what you think of him, terrorist, freedom fighter, he was a very brave man. It took, him, it took three days for them to, uh, to break his spirit. And I think, what, what, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't he in the tower for longer than that anyway? Yes, yes, yeah, indeed. Oh, because yes, they, they held yes. him for about, a, a, was it a week or, or Oh, a he was held not much longer than that. Was it? Sorry. He, he was actually executed on the 31st of January 1605, uh, 1606. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and he was hanged, drawn and quartered, which yes. is the worst possible punishments, the most serious punishment they could give. Uh, that was because he, he committed high treason. Um, so he was hanged. He was taken in the old palace yard in Westminster and he was hanged. And the executioners were very, very good at the job. He was hanged by the neck until almost dead. Then he was cut out. And I'm sorry, this gets uh, cut down. Then it gets a little bit mm. gruesome because his, in, his innards, his bowels, uh, were then drawn out of him. That's the drawing part. Mm. Uh, and then uh, his, uh, and male listeners might like to cross their legs here, uh, because his private parts were cut off. And then finally he was decapitated and his arms and legs were... He was quartered then. Yeah. And of course, the, these public executions, they, they were a great source of entertainment for oh, people, you know, it, which huge, I find huge. extraordinary, but, you know... Carried on until 1868. Uh, there, were, there was, it, it, very locally to where I live, near Starbridge, in 1812, uh, there was a murder of a, a chap called Benjamin Robbins, who was a wealthy gen- gentleman farmer, and the guy um, was actually executed Stafford in front of about 4,000 people. His body was then brought back to the scene of the murder and then gibbeted in an iron cage Gosh. Uh, for over 13 months. Oh, that sounds rather so, unpleasant, yes, doesn't it, yeah. really? Um, so, I mean, yeah, so this, this letter w- was written, but, you know, who actually discovered this this skullduggery with these the, these plots well, what actually happened then uh, as i say the 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 letter was really the uh the start of the dis- of the official discovery but as i say I, I, i'm i'm fairly convinced that cecil knew of the plot beforehand uh, because people People tended to talk. There were so many people involved. It ended up there were dozens, although there were 13 main plotters. There were dozens of people involved, as they found out afterwards. What would you say the effect had on, um, on the Catholics in England after the trials and executions? Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, the short-term effect was obviously they were in a real panic because obviously they thought if they were implicated in the plot, they risked. They, they mm-hmm. would they would they would lose the they would lose the property they would lose their, any employment they had and they would ultimately as so many of the plotters actually did they would lose the lives, but after the long term effects it was very harmful for Catholics. It wasn't until the uh, until eighteen twenty nine uh, with the Catholic uh, Relief Emancipation Act that Catholics were allowed um, to operate on the same uh, in the same levels as Protestants. So over two hundred years, it, it put the Catholic cause back quite a while yeah james the first himself was surprisingly although he was obviously extremely worried about the plot he was surprisingly in the immediate aftermath obviously the, the plotters were put to death but there weren't immediate um implications other than that but it did lead on there were, there were acts of parliament throughout the 17th century uh, to make the position of catholics worse in england one thing i'm wondering um and i, I 
don't know whether this is true or not. Does the cellar where Guy Fawkes tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament still exist? No, unfortunately no. not. It was remodelled in 1801. So uh, where, where were the old Houses of Parliament? Ve- Obviously, ve- it's, it's not where the Palace of Westminster is now, but, but it's but, very near, isn't well, it? Well, it, it was part of the original Palace of Westminster because the only original part of palace of the original pa- Palace of Westminster that survives is St Stephen's Hall. Right. large hall with the hammer being roof. Mm. So it, it didn't move very I've far. Been in there. Yes, it moved about uh, 50 metres. So it did 50 oh, to 100 so metres. So it's very so close. Then, yeah. No, but the cellars, I think, were when it was remodelled, I think the cellars were uh, destroyed. Are you aware of any, any sort of accoutrements or peripherals that have been... Um, sort of salvaged and, and, you know, put in a museum for, for this? Uh, I'm not, actually, no. That's a very good point. I just uh, wonder if they managed to salvage anything. Yes, I don't know what happened know. to his lantern, Guy Fawkes' lantern. Obviously, uh, when the conspirators fled, I mean, they did their last stand at Holbeach House, very close to where we are now, mm-hmm. and Holbeach House still ex- exists. Unfortunately, it's closed at the moment. It was, it was turned into an old people's home, um, but it's shot a few years ago. I, you know, if, if some of these places could talk... I'd love to know what mm-hmm. stories they yeah. would tell. Apparently there is still, because um, on the um, uh, uh, seventh, uh, sorry, the 8th of November, um, there was um, the Sheriff of Worcester, Richard Walsh, came up to uh, the plotters who had fled to Holbeach. Unfortunately, they had had, had a, a rather serious accident because they had been crossing the River Stour uh, probably somewhere, nobody's quite sure where, but obviously they couldn't cross where the bridge was at Starbridge because they would have been seen. So they had to fall the river and they dampened some of the gunpowder. And of course, there's no central heating, no electricity. The only way you could dry damp gunpowder was in front of an open fire. And you can guess the results. Yeah, uh, so quite a few of the members, the plotters were actually badly injured then. And then the sheriff of Worcestershire, Richard Walsh, came up uh, with a, a group of musketeers and um, basically they fought to the death. So. Gosh. Do you think it's important that we still celebrate Bonfire Night today? It's very interesting because there was a legal requirement. So an Act of Parliament in early 1606 was actually passed by James I, making it a legal requirement to commemorate the events of Bonfire Night. Uh, not necessarily involving bonfires. That seems to have come a little bit later. But that wasn't actually repealed off the statute books until 1859. But of course... It's, it depends on, you know, even, even in the 18th and 19th century, it depended on your viewpoint. Catholics would not celebrate it, obviously. Because no. A, um, and it can still cause controversy. There, there are large, uh, certainly in recent years, uh, certainly when I was younger, uh, Lewis in Sussex, they have a huge bonfire night celebration, but it's very controversial because they, bur- they do effigies of modern-day political figures and indeed occasionally religious figures and burn them, which has caused a few problems. So really, it was illegal then not to celebrate Bonfire Night. Then, wasn't uh, at, it really? at least in theory, yes. Whether or not it was ever, I wonder if anything's in the statutes in Parliament for yeah. that. Well, it, it was a statute. It was a statute law. It was a statute, it, it was law, a statute law in 1606, but it, conti- it was taken off the statute books in 1859. Gosh, it's a fascinating subject. And as I've said, if you've not seen the the program I watched the other night, go and find it on my five. It's on for about two hours. Um, but it's absolutely Sounds really interesting. I'll yeah, I'll it, catch it, up on that. it is really good. Um, I mean, David, you're from uh, Wolverhampton University. You're a reader in criminal justice history. How I, did you get into I'm that? Indeed. Uh, I got into that by uh, getting involved in... I did my master... I, I was originally an archaeologist. I did my first degree in archaeology at Birmingham University. Then I went over to modern history with my master's with the Open University. I was actually uh, sat in Dudley Archives. Uh, I was going to research the history of Wordsley Workhouse, which 
became Worsley Hospital, which is where I was born. And I went to the catalogue, and on one page there was the workhouse records, and on the other there was a, a murder, the one that I talked about before, Benjamin Robinson, 1812, and it mentioned the Bow Street Runners. And I thought, I've heard of them, everybody's heard of them, but I didn't realise they operated out of London, so I did my Masters on that, and then I did my PhD on the provincial activities of the Bow Street Runners, and they operated most widely in the country rather than in London. From 1740, they were the world's first professional detectives. Gosh. From 1749 right the way through to 1839. Everybody thinks the Metropolitan Police are Britain's first professional. No. no. Miles out, miles out. Not even the first disregarding the Bow Street Runners. And of course, you were the former editor of the Black Countryman as well. I was indeed between yes. two thousand and one and two thousand and five. What was that That's like? Great. To, to oh, it was really good fun. I, I took over from my uh, esteemed predecessor, Stan Hill. Everybody in the Black Country would know Stan Hill. I'm sure many of your listeners know Stan or knew Stan Hill personally. He, he was a real mentor to me with that. It was it was real good fun. So. How did you, how come you gave that up though, editing that? Uh, because of pressure to work, I right, was working okay. full time as well, uh, and I, uh, as part of uh, being a reader, about seventy percent of my work is actually research. So I write and research uh, books and journal articles and chapters, written about and over a dozen books, I think, or co-authored. Wow, dozen. excellent, Dave. It's a fascinating subject, and I think it hopefully put, it then puts into context the significance really of why we celebrate. Uh, bonfire nights. Indeed. It, it, it always amazes me um, that people walk to Himley Bonfire, which I believe is on tomorrow, uh, they walk right past Hull Beach House and the vast majority of people have no idea that was actually the, the conspirators' last stand. Extraordinary. Dr David Cox from the University of Wolverhampton, thank you very much for talking to Friday Night Clive. That is your lot for this episode. You can catch the programme live every Friday night on Black Country Radio from 6 o'clock p.m., and if you like our podcast, please subscribe by heading to blackcountryradio.co.uk forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. See you very soon. This is a Black Country Radio podcast presented by me, Clive Payne, and produced by Andy Caddick.